0: Case number 22-5069, Hedda. James Game, and Sidney Handy versus Donald J. Trump to balance. Mr. Binall for the balance. Mr. Sallers for
1: the appellate. Good morning, Council. Mr. Benal, please proceed when you're ready. Good morning, and may it please the court. Jesse
2: Benal, on behalf of Donald J. Trump, I will endeavor to save two minutes for rebuttal. The district court acknowledged that when President Trump made his address on the Ellipse on January 6th, 2021. He was speaking on matters of public concern. It also held that speech is unquestionably a critical function of the presidency. It even found that a first-term president is, in a sense, always a candidate for office. Nevertheless, the district court incorrectly held that the speech and other similar presidential communications were not protected by absolute immunity because the content of the speech had an electoral purpose rather than a governance purpose. This purpose-driven analysis that was favored by the district court is effectively a rebranding of the motive-driven analysis that was considered and soundly rejected by the Supreme Court in Nixon versus Fitzgerald.
3: I'm not sure that's fair. And the district court just looked at the words on their face, looked at the speech and said, Is this political or is this governmental? Without getting into what was in the president's mind. Why is that? I mean, it might be right or wrong, it just doesn't seem to me motive based. Your Honor, the reason that it is is
2: because when you look at purpose and when you look at motive, those are words that are used interchangeably in the Fitzgerald uh, opinion, effectively interchangeably in the, the Fitzgerald opinion, and goes to what what the, the intent of the president is for a particular communication. And when you start to do that sort of functional surgery, when you get so far down into deciding, well, what really is it that the, the president is trying to do here? At that point, you start to blend the lines between what is uh, something that is clearly within the realm of the presidency under Article II, and um, and, and what it's appropriate for Article Three to look at. And that's why the Supreme Court was so clear in the United States, in the case of the United States versus, oh, I'm sorry, Nixon versus Fitzgerald, that you have to have very bright lines. Because as soon as you start saying, well, The goal here really wasn't governance per uh, per se, but it was something that was political per se. It was to to help him get re-election per se. Has the district court even acknowledged in this case, with every first-term
1: president being a candidate for re-election, it will become the exception that swallows the rule? So I'm I'm not sure line drawing cuts decidedly in favor of one side or the other. I think everybody has some line drawing issues here to some extent. And let me just explore that a little bit if I could. Um, suppose you have a circumstance in which a president has a private meeting with supporters and urges them, and this is uh, this is in advance of an election, and urges them to go to the polls in unfavorable areas to intimidate voters and prevent them from exercising the franchise. And and then there's a civil action that's filed by someone who's been intimidated and deterred from voting under 1985, which I think it encompasses this kind of conduct. And um, and, um, the president asserts official immunity. And by far that would be a a horrible situation that we would hope would never happen.
2: But in a case like that, and what the the Fitzgerald Court was very clear on, it's not that there's not a remedy. The question here is only on civil liability uh, versus accountability there still is the opportunity for accountability.
1: So, is your, so your answer is that in that situation, there'd be official immunity. There would be official immunity, but... So be- even even if it's a private, it's a totally private conversation. And it's a private conversation between a president and supporters, and he urges them in private, um, what I'm worried about is winning re-election. All I care about is winning re-election. It doesn't have anything to do with any policy agenda. It just has to do with, I want to be president. And I want you to help me make that happen by going to the polls in areas in which voters are likely to vote against me and prevent them from voting. A, a, a truly horrible situation if, if that were to happen. I want to make that clear. But
2: in that case, the question is not necessarily whether it is political or electoral, but whether it is still something of public concern or, as the Clinton
1: court said, only of private concern. And in no. that case... Well, I think what the... What the- what the Nixon Court said was, it's within the outer perimeter of official responsibility, and yes. that's the language that we, we're all yes. revolving our questions around. And so, you think it's within official responsibility to urge supporters to prevent people from voting? I, I think that's a disgusting goal,
2: but I think that through, I, I think that's well within the realm of what the Fitzgerald dissenters. Used in their parades of horribles about how bad this could happen, uh, what could happen if this goes wrong, and what the Fitzgerald Court said, we understand that sometimes, even in the most extreme of circumstances, there are uh, rights without remedies,
1: and we do that with immunity every day in this court. What, what, what is the official responsibility that's being othered there? In in well, in this case, in the hypothetical
2: and well and oh i'm sorry in in the hypothetical yeah. it's of course in, in something as as bad as that um you don't want to say that there was something clearly on point that the president could point to but a president taking actions regarding elections and i don't think you want to filter down any more than that because once you filter down any more than that then you get into this ju- uh, type of judicial oversight of the executive that was not envisioned by the founders so, so the executive being part of the of of elections of you know the bully pulpit of the presidency, even if it's something that's only privately said to the supporters, to advance that. And I, I agree, your honor, that is a but what call. is?
1: But the only thing that's being advanced in that hypothetical is reelection. That's it. And what what's the official responsibility? You cannot separate governance from
2: election that if if the president wants re-election it's so that the president can continue to govern and so because of that that's i think as far down as you can go to see that if this is w- within the the realm of of the presidency is as, as bad as, as that particular act might be um, and and i want to make it clear that's something where you would have an extremely strong case for impeachment in the house conviction in the senate and then you have the impeachment judgment clause the beauty of this is that the founders gave us this system. They said that in certain circumstances, they know that something could could go horribly wrong and that a president needs to be taken out of office, and if he is, at that point, he can be prosecuted
1: for it. And something like but that, that would be... isn't turn- always the answer, right? Because, I mean, even you acknowledge in your briefs that there are certain things that a president does while in office that wouldn't be subject to immunity. Um, you had some... I think, I think sexual assault was one of them that comes up and... I think the Clinton case was clear on that. Um, And so you could have an impeachment proceeding based on that if it's conduct while in office. And if impeachment, uh, a conviction didn't happen after impeachment, you'd still allow for a civil action. In other words, it wouldn't matter that there's the impeachment remedy and it turns out that impeachment was unsuccessful. No, it, it's
2: I would say it's more like concentric circles on something like that, where, of course, you can have based on private conduct, not just uh, official conduct. And you can certainly have a lawsuit based on, as the Clinton court said, purely personal conduct, um, where you have something that's sexual assault, something purely of the, of apparent interest. And especially, of course, with uh, with the Clinton case, it's also very clear. Is it's
1: conduct that happened before the presidency, not during the presidency? I think it's particularly important. No, I was hypothesizing one. I didn't understand your brief when you talked about sexual assault to be limiting it to sexual assault before the presidency. I assume you you, you cover sexual assault, yes. even if it's coterminant with the yes. presidency. I, and Yeah, it's it's something like that is, is purely
2: of a pure and interest. So for the sexual assault, if it was, you know, someone, if it was a president talking to a stockbroker about his individual stocks, for instance, something that was only of his financial interest himself, not worried about the the broader economy, but only the the financial interest himself. That would be another example of something that is Clinton court, but purely personal.
1: And so if you have something that's purely personal, that's different. Even if it's a speech. So on the purely personal one that you just highlighted, which is personal financial interest, if the president gives public remarks that say, um, Buy my family's product, buy my son's product, instead of the competitor product, because the CEO of the competitor's company is a, name your, um, immoral conduct that's going to dissuade somebody from purchasing it. And the only thing that's going on is personal financial interest. Even if it's in a speech, you'd think that would not be immune. That hypothetical is, I think, a much closer case, because it could very well
2: be that you know, buy my product because the other side is bad could very well be public concern. But if it was buy my product because I want more money in my
0: account,
1: and and it was really limited to that, if it was if it was that narrow, then then yes. And and, and how, how do you know that? So he you're you're don't you have to mind modus to some extent as you as you started out saying to decide when when the president says, Buy my son's product. Yeah. And I really want you to buy my son's product. And, you know, part of the reason you should buy my son's product is because the person who sells the other product is a philanderer. It doesn't have anything to do um, with A um, much,
2: much closer case um, in in something like that. And, you know, the, the other person being a philanderer, I think, probably takes it to the point where it could very well be um, uh, something that the public concerned because it had to do with society's mores rather than just private concern. Um, but that is a, a much, much closer case. And I, and, I, and it is clear that in order to decide if it's something purely personal, in the words of the Clinton uh, court, you have to look at the act to decide that. But what you can't do is dive so, down, so far down that you run directly afoul of what the Fitzgerald court said. And, and uh, it's, I think, noteworthy that in this case, the district court... Claims to be looking primarily at the Clinton case. But really, if you look at it, it's it's following, it's it's paralleling the um, the objected, objections of the dissenters in Fitzgerald. And and so that really is is the difference there. Is are we taking and are we looking at uh at a, at a communication or a presidential act so so granularly that if you get far enough down into the weeds, you can certainly find an objection about, well, this is really personal, it's not presidential. But once you do that, you start this Article III uh, oversight of, of the executive that, that is, is directly opposite of what the Fitzgerald Court uh, was looking at.
3: When, when the president um, gets involved in electoral counting, what, Enumerated power of Article Two. Is he acting under? Your Honor, I, while it's very possible that when the president is campaigning, he might be executing um, or just let's focus on electoral counting. I'm sorry on on, on counting oh, of electoral counting. votes. Because um, normally, yeah, no, normally, you know, the president has a take care power, mm-hmm. which encompasses all federal statutes. He is a lawmaker to the extent he can sign or veto bills. So if he's talking about things that could be the subject of a federal statute, but that's sort of easy to see. The, the speech about the matter is sort of necessary and proper or closely connected to those powers. But electoral counting seems different because the constitution and the statutes are very clear in excluding the president. So what what power is he acting under? And the
2: words here are important because the Fitzgerald Court doesn't use the word power or duty necessarily. He uses the word function. They use the words function. So it's something that's not necessarily the Something that comes directly from a statute or constitution, well, but it does fall within the presidency. So, is,
3: I mean, is that a vehicle for creating an unenumerated power in the president? No, it's
2: not something that creates unenumerated powers. But what it does do is. Then, so which power is he acting under? It's something that the part of part of the, the historical aspect of the presidency that's been long recognized is the bully pulpit is the president to speak on things that are not necessarily within um, his, his official constitution or Article Two power. So for instance, it is very, very normal for presidents to comment on decisions of courts now. It has happened many times this year alone. It's very normal for a, a president uh, to, to uh, comment on any number of things that the president was specifically excluded under uh, from under the, the constitution. Um, you know of a, a veto override the president would still speak on even though he has no part in a veto override there's any number of things that is normal and customary for a president to speak uh, about using the, the bullet pulpit, using those matters of public concern and in, um, in in these these times it's especially important that we protect the ability of, of the president to, to act in the words um, of the Nixon court with the maximum ability to deal fearlessly and impartially with the duties of his office. Um, and so that, that goes you know, just beyond, and, and the Fitzgerald Court talks about, you can't draw lines that are so uh, fine that it ignores the history of, of the presidency and what the president does. Uh, oh, even,
4: so oh, even though you haven't cited a Supreme Court decision that quite goes as far as your last proposition you are asking this court to adopt that standard in other words Uh, you resist any effort to drill down in your words yet what i hear you saying i thought you were arguing this in your brief as well that at least it's the bully pulpit because that's just traditional, a part of a president's function, whether he is commenting on the actions of another branch or not, that the court has no role to play here. Your Honor, if it's something I would say
2: that if it is something on public concern that's right at that point the remedy is different than a damage a damages action uh, on the civil side of the court at that side then we have to follow the other remedies that are available something that the Fitzgerald court was very very clear about in the the Fitzgerald court I think goes in, into some detail um, about the the 75,000. Other, I mean, at that, that time, is probably more than uh, now. Seventy-five thousand other people in the country that have protections of absolute immunity, and that doesn't mean that there aren't uh, very worthy plaintiffs that are denied a remedy because of that. You now, if you if you no, look at the remedy, yeah,
4: that's really your point. That historically, separation of powers, uh, the founders made certain choices. And to the extent those choices uh, were, uh, what I'll say, rational decisions based on their experience in dealing with the king, that there may be gaps in our system such that, um, for example, the president may have no role in ensuring the electoral integrity uh, of the process for electing president. But nevertheless, That is within the outer limits. And as I hear you, and I thought this is true in your brief, you really resisted any uh, definition of limits. And I know the Supreme Court has spoken in terms of, well, when you can't cite an enumerated power or authority, then uh, you can, of course, rely on history. But the court there seems to be focusing on you know, 200 years of precedent, for example, in uh, subpoenas of president. So I just wondered how you would have the court write the standard.
2: That's, uh, thank you, Judge Rogers. Um, and it's, it, of course, important to, to have standards like that. And the, the, the standard that the court should adopt is very similar to what was already done with Fitzgerald in that you're limited to only seeing whether something is either within a statutory framework for the presidency, constitutional framework of the presidency, or historical framework of the presidency. And if it falls within that, that is the end of the inquiry for absolute immunity purposes, especially for the, the for the presidency where there's that it's it's perhaps the most important absolute immunity of numerous in our system, because it's so inherent in the separation of powers. And so at that point, once you decide it's on issues of public concern, there still is an opportunity for accountability. It's just not accountability through a civil damages lawsuit.
3: Suppose I agree with you on speech of matters of public concern. And I also agree with you that it is too fraught to, as a general matter, to try to distinguish political speech from official speech as to the president. Um, What makes this a hard case for me, is putting putting all of that aside, is the at least colorable case of incitement. And what is the functional justification or historical pedigree for extending an absolute immunity in in the actual case or a hypothetical case to a president who just incites lawless action, riots in the streets and so on. And uh, Judge Katz, that's, uh, Exactly the
2: issue that I think the Fitzgerald court was dealing with when they looked at the arguments about what is the point of allowing a a president to do something that is directly unlawful
3: in a personnel? It's very different. Fitzgerald was about a, a clearly official act within the president's power that might or might not be unlawful depending on the president's motive. Right. It's a retaliation case. And the court says that's just too intrusive to, to try to police that line. This seems to me different. You you take the, I take the hypothetical case. The president, um, president gets out the microphone and says, this election was stolen. They are not going to do anything. You, you go burn Congress down. Hypoth- hypothetical hypothetically, of course
2: not not what's said in the seventh speech but, but how in a
3: case like that extend I, immunity absolute immunity for that only as in regards
2: to civil liability and let's let's look at something that's that's very very horrible and that is a prosecutor purposely taking and manufacturing evidence to put an innocent defendant behind bars something that is absolutely horrible And we still say you can't sue that prosecutor. It doesn't mean that that prosecutor is free from accountability. It just means that we say that that uh, defendant cannot, uh, the criminal defendant cannot be a a civil plaintiff against that prosecutor. So
3: because we, we sort of expect that if we allow claims like that, they'll, happen all the time they might turn on motives just the burden of the burden on the system will be too great so we just allow that wrong to go uncorrected through civil remedies this just seems i mean how many cases are or will there be with a colorable claim of incitement against the president there might and be. and what's the harm of trying to police you know, is this is this just above the Brandenburg line or just below the Brandenburg line? Seems it's, like that is not gonna hamstring the president in his day-to-day job.
2: I believe it is going to uh, to hamstring the president in his day-to-day job. And here's why is because once you start to draw that line and you start to do a type of Brandenburg type First Amendment uh, uh Analysis of incitement mm-hmm. in the in the uh, in the presidency. At that point, you now have judges that are acting on empires on what crosses that line and what doesn't, in such a way that presidents will have to worry about giving speeches and everything, giving impassioned speeches, as every president has. In highly controversial presidents, uh, highly controversial speeches by presidents, which have happened before President Trump, has happened after President Trump and have to worry about what judge is this going to land in front of, what court is this going to to land in front of, in such a way that I might have to go through the full aspects of litigation, which is exactly what immunity is supposed to protect against. And that line drawing here, if you do, runs directly foul, directly of what the Fitzgerald Court was concerned about, where they knew that things, uh, what happened that would be controversial, and they knew that the founders gave us an option for that. They knew that there was a way for dealing with that. It just wasn't through
1: civil damages. Um, we'll make sure you. I'm fine. The other line of questioning. Okay. Um, can I follow up a little bit on what I thought was the main argument you were putting forward in your briefs, which is about the bully pulpit and speechmaking, but. What I hear from you this morning is not necessarily about the bully public speech making because it it seems like your argument applies to purely private interactions. And so I don't I don't know what work the speech making is doing. It seems like the line you're drawing now is purely personal versus matter of public concern, regardless of whether it's in a speech or in private. And am I missing something? Because suppose you have, you know, you, you have the personal product, promoting a personal product. Mm-hmm. Um, Even in a speech, your point is that if it's just for driving one's personal wealth, that's purely personal. And the fact that it's in the, it's the bully pulpit. The president uses the bully pulpit to say, buy this line of merchandise. It's it's gonna be great for me and my family, Um, but I'm sitting on the bully pulpit telling you this is the best stuff you've ever seen, buy this. But you think that because it's purely personal, the bully pulpit doesn't matter. It really, the dividing line is between purely personal and something that's beyond that so as to bring it within official responsibility.
2: I, I think we come back to the finer than, uh, lines finer than history would allow there, where um, the bully pulpit is incredibly important to this analysis, but the bully pulpit is something going all the way back, as far as what I've been able to, to look at and find, and I've looked at a great number of speeches, um, at this point, is on these matters of public concern when you're speaking as as the president. And that's the line that I think is particularly important to draw. I don't think the court, I think it, it is difficult um, on any speech president gives to decide that it's outside the bully pulpit uh, of the presidency. Um, and it, you know certainly the bully pulpit is within the outer perimeters of the, of the presidency,
1: but I'm just mindful of but course. not no matter what it's about, because it's not, you don't have a bully pulpit, Uber all this rule, because even if it's the bully pulpit, if it's the bully pulpit about something that's personal, you think no immunity.
2: I'd say a bully pulpit on things that are personal
1: only Right is not historically
2: as, as clearly historically as part of the presidency. I think that is would be a very fact-intensive inquiry. I think that's very different than this case, but I think that is
1: um, something that is a much closer call, but I would say that because... But close enough, closer call, yes, but but, but close enough that the lines have to be drawn so that even if it's a bully pulpit and it's purely personal, however you define the category, so it's really, really personal, not just kind of personal. Again, I, I think I understand where you're going with this, um, but so long as it's really, really personal, even if it's the bully pulpit, no immunity. That's the way you look at
2: it. Here, sure. and I, I think... The the words used in, in Clinton are, are right purely purely, purely personal. Um, if it's something that's purely personal, the Supreme Court in Clinton says um, that uh, that that's not
1: uh, uh, due immunity. That's very different. Than now, if, you, if, if you have a presidential candidate who then says um, an and incumbent who's running for yeah. reelection, who who says I want to be reelected, and the reason I want to be reelected is because it's really good for me personally. It's gonna. I mean, my products are gonna go through the roof if I get reelected. That's what I'm worried about. Admittedly,
2: a much different case, and admittedly, a yeah, much not a closer different. call. Um, and and private and private discussions are are certainly a closer call. But private discussions are also just such an inherent part of the of the presidency. It's why we have executive privilege, of course, is because private uh, communications are also. A very important part of of the presidency and so the question then uh, becomes is this something that is is within the the outer perimeter and part of, uh, of the outer perimeter is speaking on matters of public concern so if it's something where it's close it's even close and this isn't close this is speaking about you know if this is this is a speech about an election that is clearly political concern this is dead center but Oh, in the no. exception
4: go ahead finish your
2: okay. right. you thank you thank you judge Roger. um but to the analysis that that you have is admittedly closer because it appears to be you know purely uh personal at that point because it's only a pecuniary interest and when so you look at something that is by, by the words alone only a pecuniary interest just like uh in the in the clinton case of purely a sexual interest then that makes it that that very, very close call, but that's not where we are here.
4: So let me ask you to follow up on a couple of questions my colleague asked, uh, namely, had the president said, as I think Judge Katzis had a hypothetical, the election was stolen And I want you, my supporters, to go to the Capitol and burn it down. Or words to that effect, I want you to um, personally attack members of Congress. I want you to interrupt the proceedings. Um, And what I'm trying to understand in your argument is where, hypothetically, the president is undermining by his words, the system that the founders established and arguably crossing the line to not only, maybe not specifically articulating burn the Capitol and attack members of Congress, nevertheless, that was the reasonable import of his remarks as uh, the district court uh, found. It, found, And uh, to the extent neither Nixon nor Clinton involved this type of situation where, as I, to put it bluntly, even though the president may speak about destroying the constitutional system, and doing so by crippling another branch of government, that's all within the outer limits of the bully pulpit, which at least heretofore I hadn't understood to stretch so far that it could be that type of remark.
2: and Judge Roberts, right. The, the, the hypothetical you use, of course, is different from encouraging your, your supporters to peacefully and patriotically make their voices heard. But I understand your, your concern and, and your hypothetical. And what I would, I would again point you to is the Fitzgerald opinion where they say that uh, presidential matters will arouse, quote, arouse the most intense feelings. So this is not something that was that was. Unheard of to them. In 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 a hypothetical, like you just gave, you're looking at an, a a much a very very clear example when impeachment could be used. You know, go burn down the the Capitol. Impeachment could be used. Conviction could be used. And and very possibly at that point, there there could be through the impeachment judgment clause uh, further proceeding.
4: I think we're trying to explore is you're seeking absolute <laughs> unity despite the nature of the remarks and that impeachment is the only remedy, isn't that correct? It's
2: correct that that's what the Fitzgerald Court said that the remedy uh, is. And so, it's, it's not what I think is appropriate or, or what's not. It's that this debate has already happened and it was decided by well, the fiscal you know, Court. What
4: I'm trying to get is it, that we may not have <laughs> 200 years of precedent, all right, that the court looked at advance, for example. But there's always a first case. And certainly the district court and this court is not required to... Uh, Ignore the obvious unless there would be absolute immunity. And I think your argument is basically it doesn't matter what the president says. He may arouse feelings, he may arouse feelings even where he knows people have come armed with military weapons. And any candidate knows there are fringe people supporting them. They have to be careful. But nevertheless, the complaint cites a course of conduct by the president over months. And Is there no role at that point where, as a district court found, and these are not the district court's words, but the president is seeking to destroy our constitutional system?
2: And in in the facts of this case, the the answer is there is not a place in in civil litigation to review those acts of, of the president and any no, acts, no matter no how.
4: Limits, limits. that's There's my point. point under your argument, <laughs> even though you've couched some of your answers as well, we don't need to drill down any further. As a practical matter, regardless of what the president says, you're saying he is entitled to absolute immunity, mm-hmm. and the only remedy under the Constitution is impeachment. And I'm just trying to get you to deal with at least, I don't read the opinions of the Supreme Court to say, although I understand the references to history, I understand the references to press. But there always has to be a first case, all right? Um, And maybe it's not this case. And maybe it will have to wait for the Supreme Court to identify that first case. But isn't that sort of the factual situation that's before this court?
2: Your Honor, the issue with the first case is that it will almost certainly open the flood doors to the 20th case and the 50th case. And so that is why we have to be, that's why the the Fitzgerald court was so careful to close those doors on, on issues just like this and, and what the court is wrestling here is certainly understandable, but it's the same exact thing that Fitzgerald Court wrestled with 40 years ago, when it made a decision on that. And if, if the, the argument is that the Fitzgerald Court was just wrong, then that's a question for uh, for the Supreme Court, not for this court, because these are our questions as, as clear as, as the, your honor has, has been, um, on the, the difficulties of presidential actions that are that arouse the most intense feelings, the Supreme Court has been very clear that that's not a position for, for courts, especially in civil litigation.
3: I just asked, um, no, go ahead, please. You, you've said um, civil liability clearly off the table, impeachment clearly on the table. you have a position on criminal liability?
2: That's a very different... Case, but I, I think that I don't have to necessarily have a position on that because the founders did and and I think other courts
3: have, have spoken more um, more at length I mean, about the, it. The, the, the attractiveness of absolute immunity in the civil context might depend on the number of other remedies available. so it, it,
2: that's right your honor I, I would agree with that and so what you what you have is I mean for instance we've talked about impeachment a lot today. But the fiscal Court talks about the other uh, remedies. Is criminal a possibility? Criminal, if you look at, at other cases that are out there, theoretically could be, especially when you look at the impeachment judgment clause, where if in, in the hypothetical that the court um, uh, used earlier, there was something so extreme as instructing people to buy. Burn down the Capitol, right. um, and and something that that is inflaming. We're looking at a very very different case than peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. Where at that point the um, the the case for for impeachment for removal is so strong that you have the impeachment judgment clause, for just that reason where the founders made very clear that after an impeachment, after a conviction, after a removal from office, that that there can be. Uh, a, Criminal aspects. You then also look at um, some of the other cases that have been decided more recently. You know, of course, you have United States versus Nixon, um, et cetera, et cetera, where there could also theoretically be um, the other remedies that are available. Um, And the Fitzgerald Court was extremely clear that they were only talking about civil liability. Well, they didn't go into into as much detail about things like like criminal liability, and that's not why we're, we're here
1: today. Um, the Fitzgerald Court was talking about civil liability. That's why we're here today. Um, just uh, two more questions, I know, um, we'll, we'll, and we'll give you some rebuttal time. Um, what do I do with the following set of considerations that for when a president is seeking re-election, there's a lot of things that a president might do to seek re-election that are nothing bound up in his official responsibilities as president because the opponent might seek to do the very same things. And the opponent, by definition, can't be the president. We don't have to be Mm -hmm. president at the same time. So, uh, the opponent says, um, I want to do the following things to make sure that my side wins. And all they're trying to do is to get an office. The president's trying to do the exact same thing. Why isn't it the case that when You have actions that could equally be done for the exact same purpose which is to gain office that a non-president can do it takes it outside the can of what's within the perimeter of the president's official responsibility which is the words that yes judge
2: and there are certain uh, advantages of course that are built into our system that an incumbent president does have, and I don't know that this is necessarily an advantage so much as it's something that follows the office of the president. Um, and so, for instance, um, an early candidate for, for president is not going to have Secret Service protection, uh, but a, a, a president is. A candidate for president is not necessarily going to have the amazing advantage of having Air Force One. A president is. And in this case, There are still very robust protections for all presidential candidates. The First Amendment dead center has to do with
1: political speech and what a presidential candidate is going to say on the campaign. I guess it's not, what I'm asking about, and I I know I'm asking it very abstractly so I can make it more concrete, but I'm not trying to say that there's a disequilibrium and then one side is advantaged for purposes of the election. I'm not worried about that. What I'm worried about is whether it actually falls within official presidential responsibility when what's going on is campaigning for office. Both sides are campaigning for office. Both sides do things that try to maximize the chances that they'll win. It just turns out that when the president does some things that maximize the chances that he'll win, it's immune. When the other side does the exact same thing, um, you know, the the, the other side, to, to use the hypo I started it out with, tries to get people to the polls who support them to prevent anybody from voting in, in uh, districts that are going to be disadvantageous for them to have a high vote count that's and all they're trying to do is get in office doesn't have anything by definition has nothing to do with official presidential responsibility because all they're trying to do is get in office it's the exact same thing the president's trying to do all he's trying to do is trying to get in office but yet total immunity on one hand you can have agreements with people to go to the polls to stop people from voting and you can't be sued civilly for
2: that's right, Your Honor. And, and I, I understand what the, the court is is concerned about there, but what I would say is um, there may be a number of things that are within the functions of the, of the presidency that are not unique to the presidency. So while it is unique to the presidency that he has, at least highly unusual to the presidency, and probably unique of the, the, the bully pulpit of, of the presidency, it certainly is not a case that other people can't give impassioned speeches that that get a wide audience and that you're going to have different legal protections. Um, And it it is still the case, for instance, that government employees that retaliate against uh, other government employees are not going to have the same level of immunity. They'll have a different immunity. Um, And there's certainly, of course, retribution in employment that happens where uh, all across this country every day, there's no immunity at all. Uh, so, of, of course, it, in courtrooms just like this one, certainly in this building, you have people that are operating where a prosecutor can do one thing and be immune from civil liability and a defense attorney can do almost the exact same thing and and is very much subject to liability. So this is something that's inherent within our system that because it's so important to protect certain uh, functions of
1: certain offices, that it's going to be that disequilibrium, at least to some extent. last question for me for now, um, Your the insulation that immunity affords would apply even if the president, who is a presidential candidate, offers payment, right, so the, the way you're looking at it. So if the presidential candidate says, I'll pay you to go to the polls to prevent people from voting, I'm not talking about speech. I'm just saying that's an action that just says uh, it's just a, it's an action that says I was intimidated from voting. I went to the polls to vote. I couldn't vote because this person came to me armed and said, you're not going to vote today. I went home. Turns out the president paid that person to make sure that I couldn't vote. Doesn't have anything to do with speech. It's just the conduct of preventing me from voting and the conduct the president took. Your answer is still immunity. My answer is that immunity civilly. But
2: that is that is something dead center that there should be very serious consequences for in the other aspects of accountability. But but as far as civil immunity
3: goes, even so, in a case where, you know, First Amendment law would treat something as a verbal act rather than a speech. Yes, Judge Katzis, this is different than a why are you fighting that? that? That's not this case. Why, why do you need to win that I, I don't need to win that. I, I think that, of course, is a much much closer case. Well, I'm trying to understand, understand. That seems like an extraordinary. No, that's intention.
2: that's a that's an extraordinary. And and I will say this: that becomes something that certainly is very fact dependent because it's not part of the bully pulpit of, of the presidency. Is something on matters of the public. But we concern. already
1: got past bully pulpit. It, because, right. Well, yeah. I mean, I think earlier yeah. you you realize we're past the bully pulpit because even private conversations are fine as long as they concern an election. And and certainly, yeah, immunity is not. Not limited to the bully bully pulpit, absolutely.
2: Um, and so, what I, I I'm getting at there is that it is it is much it is certainly much harder to tie the hypothetical that you just gave into a historical aspect of a presidency such as the bully pulpit. It's a much much
1: closer case at that point. So, for instance, but oh, still immunity under your view. I mean, your argument is that you have immunity because it has to do with an election. And it's, well,
2: it's, it's a closer call. I, I still think immunity probably would apply in that situation, but and, – and one thing to look at is congressional immunity, where you might have uh, one member of the House of Congress beat another with a cane, right? And that wasn't part of speech and debate. Because it was beating with a cane, there was criminal liability on that, and and there was no protection on, on the House floor when that happened with, uh, with Preston uh, Brooks. Uh, beating some of um, uh, the lead up to the Civil War, so something like that, where we look at the other immunity for Article One, you can look at and see that there is a much
1: closer right, there. and and to be and to be to fall within immunity, which you said it does, that means that that conduct is within the outer perimeter of official responsibility. I'm, that's within official responsibility. I'm saying that it's that because
2: it's. Let me watch that. I think just it has a little. to be your answer. It, 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 it is, yeah. it, it certainly is my answer that, that it is, but it becomes then the closer call that we talked about, not nearly as, as clear as, as we are here as to whether that's connected to uh, something that's historically part of the presidency unlike giving a presidential speech or communicating as
3: president. Okay, uh, Just one, one more question for me, which is um, about an argument I don't think you made correct me if I'm wrong, the principal statute here applies generally to persons. And we in the Supreme Court have a line of cases which say you, you have a generally worded statute that covers persons or agencies, right, in the FOIA context, the APA context. We presume that those general words don't pick up the president. Did you make that Argument and if not, why not? Um, I'm not sure that that's quite as
2: with. uh, uh, Let me say this that is clearly something that the court should consider um, in a a Nixon type analysis. I think that the court certainly can make that uh, a consideration in a uh, Nixon uh, uh, versus Fitzgerald. um, Did did you make the
3: argument? I, I don't know if we made it in quite that that way i didn't see it in the district court opinion so, um,
2: i i believe it, it was it was yeah, you know judge Katz is trying to to go back to the the briefs i, I don't want to make a representation that i'm fair enough it, it
3: wasn't before us it just struck me that might be a little bit of a narrower and more textually based way of sort of operationalizing some of the themes you're articulating than Getting into immunity, which has a little bit of a
1: made up feel to me. Uh, that's that's right. And um, well, to be clear, as I understand the question, it doesn't have to do with Nixon versus Fitzgerald immunity. It's that textually.
3: No, it's a textual question
1: whether that's
3: open to us yeah. as an alternative.
2: Uh, I, I'd say it certainly is open uh, to the court to decide something on that limited ground. Um, and... I'd have to think about, about the avoidance canon and whatnot, and whether that's, that's an appropriate in the, to do it at like this
3: stage. Immunity a little bit open-ended. It might be common law-ish, but it might be article two-ish. So if we render an immunity holding, I suppose it depends on how we write it, but we could be, could be saying something about the constitution, which the statutory theory would not. That,
2: that's right. And it, this gets into a little bit of a discussion in Fitzgerald, actually, between the the uh, the majority and Chief Justice Burger, um, talking about uh, what Congress can specifically do uh, regarding making it so President is is specifically subject to the suit. But I, I agree that that would be one aspect of of an avenue that the court
1: could take to resolve uh, this question. Um, well, not our court. I mean, I, I, it's not that issue's not before uh, our court. You're, you're just saying a court. A, 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 court, a court,
2: court district. Is, that could certainly be something it's, that resolved. Well, it, it's, not, it's not
1: part of the immunity question.
2: It's, but, it really uh, is not part of the immunity question. It's it's something that I would say is is separate.
1: Um, and so that's, um, yeah, something that, that could be looked at. Make sure my colleagues don't have additional questions for you at this time. Um, thank you. Well, we'll give you some rebuttal time. We'll hear from thank Mr. You. Sellers now.
0: Good morning. May it please the court, Joseph Sellers. Um, I do want to address the immunity issue. Before I do, I want to answer a question Judge Katz has just asked, although I think the issue of, uh, I think it's the clear statement rule, is not an issue here because of the nature of the question presented. But I would just call to your attention, uh, the Franklin against Massachusetts Supreme Court decision at uh, 505. That's you know,
3: one I had in mind.
0: Okay. Well, the, the key there, the language there expressly says that it's, the president's uh, coverage in a statute, which it's not named, should not be presumed where it might interfere with the president's constitutional prerogatives. And I submit that here, the president has not been engaged in anything remotely like constitutional prerogatives. So it, while that statute might apply in other circumstances where the president has acted, in our view, outside the outer permit of the presidency, um, I don't think you can apply that rule here. And I think Franklin and courts interpreting it have so recognized. So let me turn to the question that we do have before us, which is that President Trump is not entitled, <clears throat> excuse me, to the immunity uh, which he seeks because his conduct uh, interfered with the peaceful transfer of power, which is exclusively entrusted to Congress by the Constitution in which the framers intentionally excluded the President from. And as a result, it's inconceivable that that kind of conduct, which infringed the prerogatives of of another branch of government can be within the legitimate duties of the presidency, even the outer perimeter of those legitimate duties. It would be extraordinary, and I'll come back to uh, President Trump's proposed uh, matters of public concern, although there may be less of that to discuss than before, but it's inconceivable that Uh, the the president can avail himself of immunity, which derives directly from the same separation of powers uh, underlying our government that his conduct warded by blocking the discharge of duties solely entrusted to Congress and from which the incumbent president was intentionally excluded. He can't have it both ways. He can't avail himself of an immunity provided by the separation of powers and uh, by by virtue of conduct it infringes on the separation of powers, and that is what he's done here. Um, I can turn. So, what, uh,
1: let me just test that a little bit. So, suppose the president exhorts um, people who he's speaking to to go to Congress to stop a vote on legislation that he opposes.
0: So um,
1: that's, in, that's interfering with Congress's conduct of a vote. But it's something the presidents often encourage people to let Congress know that they oppose legislation that's being
0: considered. I I think the circumstances here are more extreme because this is a situation, there's no question that the boundaries between the branches of government are not always, they're not siloed. So there are occasions where one (laughs) may uh, be engaged with the other. But this is an area that's hermetically sealed from the presidency in which it's clear that uh, not only was it exclusively entrusted uh, to the president, but um, as opposed to maybe people appearing to, to lobby or to express opinions on a piece of legislation. And very importantly, as, uh, a federal state for 68 states uh, was intended to keep the president, incumbent president, away from the very process he interfered with. So I don't think it's the same circumstance. I think this is uh, uh, one that is uh, um, not your run-of-the-mill presidents uh, saying, you might go to Congress and tell people that you don't like this legislation, which is maybe within the province of the- the,
1: uh, What if the legislation is an amendment to the Electoral Count Act? Sorry, it's an amendment amendment to the law that that defines how Congress- I
0: still don't think that it's, it's, uh, I mean, if it's enacted, it may be a different matter, but I think it's
1: uh, no. But he he opposes the legislation or supports it. Either way, yeah, he yeah. exhorts his. I,
0: I don't think it. I don't. I, I think we're talking about what's in, incorporated into the Constitution, um, and uh, the Electoral Count Act is an aid of uh, uh, enforcing the terms of the uh, the provisions of uh, Article uh, Two, but it's not uh, something that is um, uh, you know part and parcel of that. So I I would not. I don't. I think we would think that is the same kind of violation of separation of powers.
1: You, th- you think it is? It, 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 uh, it, it is not. It is not. So the president, that would be immune. There that would, would be, be immune. immune, yes. There are lots of circumstances
3: in which a president speaks on matters that aren't in any obvious way connected to his take care or bill signing or other Enumerated powers. Um, Your broadest theory would call all of that into question, or would at least expose the president to civil suits. That seems troubling. Yeah. So let's just talk about a couple. Um, The president is hermetically sealed uh, away from deciding cases or controversies within the meaning of Article Three. There is hypothetically, a leaked draft Supreme Court opinion and the president issues president issues a public statement strongly supporting or condemning right. the presumed decision in a pending case. Right.
0: Um, it, again, I, I don't think it is, uh, uh, the bottom line is I think the president's entitled to immunity.
3: And is re- entitled? Is entitled to immunity. And on what uh, theory?
0: On the theory
3: that. It's just talking about the result in the case.
0: Correct, and that's the reason I think he's entitled to immunity. The, 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 rem, the remarks, I think, that, that um, President Trump's standard that he's proposing here, uh, that, which focuses on the speech, although I will come to the district court's, I think, well-thought-out characterization of the, uh, of the speeches um, as promoting his incumbency, but putting that to one side yeah. as a general matter um, I think the remarks the president makes are generally immune from
3: uh, S- speech. It's speech. It's on a matter of public concern.
0: Right.
3: And it's in an area where the president has no, no direct I, power. And
0: I think that what makes this particular situation uh, uh, an offense to and, the separation of powers. Is that his remarks were part of a course, ongoing course of conduct, which led to the actual disruption of the performance? And I'm I'm gonna
3: we'll we'll talk about that. And just to show a few cards, what makes this a hard case for me, I I ask your opponent about this is the, you know, I'll just say arguable or colorable incitement. But your broader theory about, you know, if the president is talking about a court issue or a state issue or cultural issue in the world?
0: Oh, I think that's, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, I, I think that those are um, ordinary functions of the presidency and would be well within the boundaries of the outer perimeter of the presidency is entitled to immunity. So the Supreme
3: court says that Congress lacks constitutional authority to um, prohibit, possession of weapons within X hundred feet of a school president gets on TV and in fiery rhetoric urges the states to prohibit possession of guns within the school zone. That's fine.
0: Again, I don't think it's an offense to the separation of powers. It is uh, a form of which there's a lot of fiery rhetoric now these days in public discourse. So that alone, I don't think is
3: Sure, but I important. mean, I'm constructing the hypo so that you, you can't connect the
1: speech to
0: it. But you're, you're, as I understand, the, the key part of the hypothetical is that it, it he direct he urges the states to take action. Um, and, and it's that action which. And
3: then he goes on to say, um, you better do this because these gun manufacturers have blood on their hands and they don't care that school children are getting slaughtered. Right. right. It's very fiery. Yes, and-, and it's not just they should act. It's they yeah. should act because you know there's some bad person doing something. I understand? I
0: again, I think there's there's immunity there. Um, his his action, his his remarks, are urging the states or anyone else to take certain action. But the key part is that the there was no interference there as there was here, with the actions of a co-equal branch of government.
3: Okay, so so. Hypothetical case, electoral counting, and the president gives the speech, urges people to march, and is crystal clear he wants a nonviolent protest. And he quotes Gandhi and Martin Luther King and asks the protesters to sit in front of Congress and be arrested.
0: I I don't think the... uh, the, the again the focus from our perspective is on whether the the consequence is the interference with in this case the electoral college count uh, uh, ballot count and if there's a, the interference with a core function of another branch of government uh, whether it is because they he's told them to act peacefully and they nonetheless interfere or he incites them to violence and they interfere the key is that he inter, that they interfered, in as part of his direction in a in a core function of another branch of government exclusively entrusted to their branch of government. And here one that was ex, ex, that the framers could have been clearer that they wanted the president to stay out of.
1: So the answer just to so go, the answer to the hypothesis yeah, this I'm sorry if I didn't answer it. There there is immunity or there's not
0: there's there it's is crystal
1: immunity. clear he wants to speak a peaceful it, protest.
0: There's there's immunity at least if I understand your hypothetical correctly there was no interference with the ultimate electoral college ballot count in your hypothetical. Am I correct, or have I misunderstood?
3: Well, let's. I'll, I'll give you two. First one is no interference, crystal clear. No violence, peaceful protest. Right.
0: I don't think. I think there's immunity.
3: Okay. Same hypo, except, just take this as a stipulation. Unforeseeably, to the president. Right. Some some bad apples in the group. Right. Um, don't follow his direction to peacefully protest right. and, and break in.
0: And- so, so you raised the question, which I think is, uh, I'm sorry, I just need to answer your question, is um, by saying that I think under those circumstances, to be direct, there's probably uh, immunity. But I want to distinguish it from the circumstances here, if you'll permit me, because here there are, and I can review them from the record, Events that occurred here that are not just that, that show that this was a continuous course of conduct by the president, for which he is ultimately responsible as opposed to the totally unforeseen circumstances, which I understand are hypothetical. So
3: I, I, I agree with how you're thinking about the case, which is to say the pressure point is the arguable incitement. That's a bit different from. The district court theory, which is trying to draw a line between speech qua, official speech qua president and and speech qua sure.
0: candidate. So let me let me turn to that. Which I uh, the, the district court I think offers another and in some ways narrower ground on which to affirm, uh, but it is less susceptible to any clear. I actually think it's much point.
3: broader. It's much broader right. because the the line between candidate speech well, and presidential speech is going gonna... to.
0: I, sorry, I totally agree with you. Uh, when I said narrower, what I meant was on the well pleaded allegations of the complaint here, I think the district court's uh, um, ruling can be uh, affirmed. What I think even the district court acknowledges is that, <laughs> excuse me, it's very hard to draw some lines based on that. It would guide future presidents. Right. Which is why I think we look to, as the benchmark, the, the, the separation of powers is a much more endurable and uh, uh, bench uh, uh, way of looking at this, and one that the Supreme Court in the Dixon case and the Clinton case both examined.
1: That's the narrow ground. When you say there's a narrow ground, that's the one you're
0: talking I, about. I'm sorry. What I mean by narrow is I perhaps should have said well defined ground mm-hmm. rather than narrow. But that is the one. I'm sorry. That's which which, I'm which is what? <laughs> I'm
3: sorry. If it's, if it's not, um, uh, uh, if it's not a case by case judgment of whether the challenge speech is official or right. electoral, what is it?
0: It's instead the the, the, the general, general uh, standard is whether it infringed, uh, the, disrupted the separation of powers, mm-hmm. infringes the co-equal branch of government and discharge of duties exclusively entrusted to it. And the point without characterizing it as narrow or broad is it offers, a I think, a clearer, uh, guide future presidents and courts and one that is in, entrenched in based on the, uh, uh, some of the jurisprudence admittedly limited from the Nixon and the Clinton case.
1: So if, the, if a president, if President Clinton, while the Supreme Court is considering Clinton versus Jones, exhorts people to go to the Supreme Court and let their voices be heard um, to urge the court to rule in his favor.
0: To rule against, I'm sorry.
1: To rule in or his, his favor, favor. favor in Clinton versus Jones, which is yeah, pending yeah. on the day of argument. Well, it's pending.
0: pending,
1: yeah. No, no immunity because if there's separation of powers. It's interfering with the conduct of, of another branch. If, if it
0: is, if it, if its its effect is not just about the purpose. If the effect is to, you know, if they disrupt the functioning of the Supreme Court, if they stop the deliberations, if they do something of that sort, I think there's no immunity. Mm-hmm.
1: And, that, and whether it has that consequence is based on the allegations in the complaint. So the complaint alleges that President Clinton urged everybody to go to the Supreme Court to protest loudly. That ended up causing the court to take a recess while in the middle of argument and therefore s- suppose that there's some injury that results from that. And civil liability, no immunity.
0: I, I see my time is so expired. Keep,
1: we, I, we we might keep you longer.
0: <laughs> That's fine. I'm I'm happy to be here. Just sure. to. Yeah, no, please. No.
1: Thanks for my, thanks
0: for noting it. But absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I think under the circumstances you you presented, again I want to focus on whether the the entire course of conduct that started with President Clinton urging the crowd to go to the to the Supreme Court would would have uh, been that the interference with the functioning of the court. Would have been part of uh, uh, of the sort of inextricably bound up in his original uh, direction or exhortation. So, if he had said, "Go to the court, and um, you know, uh, stand outside and chant, uh, we want a certain outcome," um, and that was it, and some group nonetheless went and in, invaded the court. Uh, I think it is a harder call to uh, to. Uh, divest him of immunity because it is under those circumstances a part of a continuous course of conduct of which the the end game the interference was not part of it. I can give you some examples in the complaint here uh, or in the record here, which I think show why this particular situation is part of a continuous course of conduct which would was. Uh, but I thought a lot of
1: the allegations are to the effect that the the president knew what was going to happen kind of catalyzed what was gonna happen. Didn't actually say, I don't think there's an allegation in the complaint that says go do what ended up happening. So there's always gonna be this question of predictable consequences or foreseeable consequences, even if the words themselves as alleged in the complaint don't call for those consequences.
0: But the circumstances here, if I can give you a few examples from the record that I think demonstrate that the the President Trump here Set this up with uh, in, in order to uh, interfere with uh, the, ballot, the electoral college ballot counting. So, beside the fact that he called the assembled crowd to direct them to the to the uh, Capitol, which, by the way, it was a violation of the permit, which only allowed them to stay at the at the Ellipse, um, in dispatching the crowd uh, to Congress, President Trump urged them to take back our country by demanding that Congress do the right thing and only count. The electors who had been lawfully elected, sorry, lawfully slated. Um, he uh, um, began these before January 6th, of course, he was repeatedly telling his followers about the election was stolen and stopped the steal and it's fraudulent. So he set the stage on January 6th for a series of expectations about the legitimacy of the election. He then dispatched the crowd to go to the Congress um, and as we also is uh, alleged in the complaints, um, he chose the timing in such a way he could have waited till the electoral college balloting had concluded. Um, but he chose to do this at a time when Congress was actively engaged in the very process that he was exhorting the crowd to stop. And I think those circumstances make this uh, uh, evident from the record uh, without any need for discovery or anything like that. The, that was uh, ultimately part of the, was the overall course of action which
1: but it seems point like point. a lot of that goes to degrees of likelihood that the injury would come about. And there's various data points that you've put together both here and in your complaint that say should have known what was going to happen. And right. that's the same thing could be true when a president says go to the Supreme Court
0: right
1: And on, on, on that hypo can I just ask the following question which is at the outset I think in, in response to Judge Cassis, if there's a leak of an opinion, and the opinion hasn't been issued yet, by definition. Um, there's, so we don't know yet what the outcome of the case is going to be. If a president then urges supporters to um, voice their opposition to what appears to be where the Supreme Court's headed, what's the difference? And, and, you, and I think you said there would be immunity there. What's the difference between that and telling them to go there on the day of argument? It, it, it's still that the decision hasn't been rendered yet. It's still yes. urging people to go and affect what the result's going to be, and it's still urging them to go and affect the result of a proceeding that's pending in another branch of government. Right.
0: And again, I, I think there's a difference in uh, what I believe here was conveying uh, the expectation that they would actually intrude on, stop the process for counting the Electoral College ballots if, if in your hypothetical, uh, it had been, and go into the Supreme Court and stop them from deliberating or something that sort, I think. We'd have a different situation because uh under those circumstances they would be directly disrupting the functioning of a co-equal branch so, so
1: then what's the standard what, what's the standard you would say that we would write into an opinion that divides the kind of exhortation that infringes the separation of powers in the way that you think is here and, and in situations that fall short because although the outcome happens and it sets in motion, a chain of events that results in the outcome, it's, you still have immunity.
0: I think based on the uh, well-pleaded allegations of complaint, um, that there was uh, uh, the, the, the president uh, launched, uh, at, took action uh, uh, that um, disrupted or blocked uh, the performance of a function, and I say blocked or disrupted, because that term is critical to this as opposed to complaining or protesting or something. but. Actually disrupted the discharge of duties by a co-equal branch of government in an area that was exclusively entrusted to uh, that uh, branch of government, and I but think- not
1: that it had that result because that's going to be the allegation in any case in which that result ensues. So, what's the standard that that it has to turn on what the president in fact said or did, right? Yes, without regard to yes. what yes. result is yes. talking about. And yes,
0: but it's but it's that he um, it, well, it, there is there is a. I think you have to evaluate it without having recognized what the result was. It, right. That is uh, uh, whether the president intended the result or not. Right. Uh, but so the first point is: did it, it didn't have the effect of disrupting the discharge of duties exclusively trusted to another branch of government? But in order to attribute that to the president, which would divest him of immunity, you have to look at. I think. <clears throat> excuse me. The entire course of events leading up to it. Uh, including events with respect to, for instance, what happened before January 6th, and look to see whether the, the president could reasonably be uh, credited with responsibility for that series of events all attributed to his remarks or his uh, instigation. And admittedly, it's based on the allegations of light, as we know, although the, uh, if the if immunity is denied, the president has an opportunity at the trial court with additional discovery to show that in fact, I didn't, that didn't happen the way that you've
1: alleged and I'm- So I'm, I'm maybe my own density, so, for, so forgive sorry. me, but it may be my own density, so forgive me, but the standard would be then predicated on, it has to be predicated not on the actual outcome, on the effect, it has to be predicated, the standard by which we determine whether immunity exists, has to be predicated on what the president said or did. And that standard, I heard block or interference. So is the standard, the president asked for blocking or interferencing or interfering
0: either either overtly explicitly or implicitly that is i think you as you point out the president and i think this one was in our uh, in our allegations are was very artful in the way he did this uh did not ever announce go to congress and stop this from happening
1: but and why doesn't that apply to president the president clinton hypo the same thing it's you could just say it's he stopped just short of it. Knew what was going to happen. I'm just trying to get the exact no, words we would use.
0: Yeah, I'm sorry. If you if you can remind me of the particulars of your president, I have several. Right.
1: So, Clinton versus Jones is pending before the Supreme Court. Right. The president says, "I see. Okay. Go to the Supreme Court. Make sure uh, protest at the court, and um, I need to win this case." And doesn't say interfere. Doesn't say stop the court from doing what it's doing. Could be seen as just go and peacefully protest. Could also be seen as do something more, and that's the kind of ground that we have to be cognizant of right. if we were to fashion a standard along right. the lines of what you're saying. So well, that's
0: why. And I guess I'm I'm, I'm not sure I'm, I'm going to be as much help with this as you would like me to be because I think it turns on the contours of the allegations in the case. So I think your in your hypothetical, it's pretty thin compared to the circumstances we have here. Um, and so I would say that uh, instead of saying it's necessarily immune or necessarily not immune, um, I would say again, I think the question is on the taking the record as a whole, um, is, is it uh, plausible to infer that the president was initiating actions which um, were uh, going to. Um, disrupt the performance of or block the performance of a co-equal financial government's discharge of its duties.
1: Plausible to infer that the yes. president was asking I for I think action. that's
0: all we can do okay. on, the, on the face of a complaint.
1: And it wouldn't be plausible to infer that in the IPO in which the president says, go to the Supreme
0: Court. I think it's, I think it would be a closer call. I, I think it would probably be so thin um, given the, the consequence, which is to uh, to waive immunity that that would, might fall in favor of granting of immunity. But it is, I, did, I just think this has to be judged based on the plausible allegations in the complaint and the sufficiency of them as to uh, whether they show uh, an intention to, or, not intention, but the a, a, a president pursuing a course of conduct, which, which is directed at disrupting uh, the performance of a political branch of government
3: what is the relationship between this standard you've articulated block i'll just call it the blocking standard okay um, and the substantive first amendment brandenburg standard so it seemed to me very odd to say that the president would lose his immunity for this kind of inciting activity in circumstances where a private party would have a substantive defense under
0: Brandenburg? Well, except that we hold presidents to a standard uh, that they adhere to the constitution and um, uh, the private party um, has rights in some ways that the president doesn't have.
3: So in your view, the president would the president could be divested of immunity in circumstances where the um, private party could not be held liable, consistent with the First Amendment?
0: I I think under the scenario you gave, that's definitely a possibility. I don't, I I mean, I think here we have a situation which makes that- Do you
3: think the president on the merits has a First Amendment Brandenburg defense? I know the district court rejected it. Do you think he has it?
0: I I don't think as as a member of the government that I think he has a First Amendment. Even as an
3: office holder, Speaking on matters of public concern,
0: um, I again don't think that the First Amendment governs that inquiry. Um, but I, I would add one thing in this setting, in this case, that if the Brandenburg standard would apply, I think he crossed it.
3: So let's let's talk about that. So that's to me, that's where the rubber meets the road here. Okay. And I know it's a tough case if you look that you just print out the speech, which I have done, and read the words on the page, um, doesn't look like it would satisfy the stand, right? right? The worst parts of it are ambiguous terms, you know, fight like hell, and there are other parts of it that are explicitly say, don't be violent. Um, now, if you compare that to um, we're going to break your damn necks, which is Claiborne Hardware, or we're going to take to the effing streets, which right. is Hess, right. this looks less inciting.
0: So so uh, first of all, I think this has to, the remarks on the ellipse on the 6th have to put in a broader context. This wasn't a speech that was del- delivered in um, a vacuum or in blank slate. He had... And building and building a series of view of expectations and skepticism and anger about results of the election.
3: And if you minimize the words on the page and maximize the context, I'll just call you know the, the powder keg. Just use that for shorthand, then it looks maybe dangerous.
0: Well, and and I again, I would say that the fact that after um, rousing this group, which all responded to a, a, a invitation of the president that was laden with um, uh, ex- expressions about the the election was stolen and was fraudulent, and we have to make sure an illegitimate president isn't isn't inaugurated, things of that sort, they come to the ellipse, and as I think the term used, a, a powder keg. Mm-hmm. He, created a powder keg by virtue of the lead up to that. And then he ignited it um, uh, by, and yes, there may be no single set of words at the ellipse that are tantamount to the uh, kind of examples that you have in the uh, the Brandenburg uh, cases, but taken as a whole, I think it's quite clear that the president uh, was then uh, igniting this situation um, and, um, uh, you know, talking about, again, demanding that Congress did the right thing and only count the electors have been lawfully slated and let's walk to the Capitol. Yeah,
3: I, I get it. Um, the Sixth Circuit has a couple of Brandenburg cases, including one involving the, a protester at a Trump rally who was roughed up, which seemed to stand for the proposition that if. If the words themselves are not very inciting, and the primary danger comes from the powder keg, um, that's not enough to eliminate First Amendment protection under Brandenburg. You have a view on that? I mean, I know you have a view on that. But how um, should we? Yeah. How should we? You know, I, I can't remember if these were in the briefs, But Bible believers and Nwanguma. Yeah,
0: I don't remember them being in the brief, but I can. I accept your summary of them. Um, So again, I want to back up for just a second, and I realize this may be very important to you, but I don't think the Brandenburg standard governs here. But that said, if it were to play a role in this, um, I think it's, in the Sixth Circuit concluded that uh, that, the words are not enough even if they're simply igniting a powder keg. Um, I'd have to see the circumstances in which they said that. I think we have a an enormous type of powder cake here. I'm not sure you could say one that this, the case for all purposes, and I have to look at the six Circuit decisions. To well,
3: one about. one of them is, there's um, a Muslim festival, and protesters go, and right in the middle of it, shout very offensive things about Islam, and provokes a violent response, but the the things shouted are... Clearly protected. And the argument for um, no First Amendment protection is like, my God, this was a powder keg. Of course this was going to happen. Any idiot would know that there'd be a violent response. Well, and, then, and then the second case, Nwanguma, is it's a, it's a Trump rally. There are protesters. The crowd's getting worked up. Right. And he says, get them out of here, but don't hurt them. So, ambiguous words on the page, but
0: fraught Sorry. situation. Right. So, uh, I, I'm not sure this is a perfect distinction, but one of the things I would say here is that the uh, beside the powder cake situation, mm-hmm. um, I think here President Trump was launching a course of conduct um, that was uh, as opposed to perhaps calling some people by uh, inflammatory names, for instance, or something of that sort. Um, and I think that the... Distinction is important because it makes it puts the president in a position to be part of the course of action that followed, rather than simply an instigator. Um, and uh, not that I think he was an instigator here, but I think that is a distinction. Okay. Uh, on on Brandenburg is
1: is it the case? I don't know the answer to this. Do you get an immediate collateral order appeal in a Brandenburg situation normally?
0: Not that I know of.
1: So so there's, you could view Brandenburg as. As overlapping with presidential official immunity, but presidential official immunity also yeah. can be viewed as a distinct issue.
0: Yeah, and I that, think it's quite clear in this in the way the issue is presented by the appellant, and with which we did disagree because of the way it's framed, is I think the only issue that is granted immediate appeal is the issue of immunity. Um, I submit that the Brandenburg issue is. Um, a separate important issue, but I don't think it feels it's it in, could, it could it,
3: inform it, it was litigated below is a merits yes. issue. I'm testing if I if I think it's
1: a limiting yeah. principle on the right.
3: immunity. And, and I'm
0: happy to answer your questions. I, I just, uh, yeah, I just,
1: just was trying to understand the architecture of the case. That's all.
3: I, I, just, I, don't I don't
0: think it is, uh, it is squarely I, before the court right now. I I I mean, just, it
3: seems to me it's a novel issue because we don't have one way or another a case on absolute immunity in a borderline or just more than borderline insight case.
0: Yeah, and so, again, I, I, I agree. Uh, one so it could
1: inform it, the content of immunity. I don't I think right. it could, yeah. but I just was making sure at, that I understood at, where we stood in the case.
0: And it's one reason why we've been, again, returning to the separation of powers, because we think that's the benchmark with which to be doing this. And uh, the nature of the remarks may be part of the course of action that uh, is there, but it's not... Uh, we don't see the First Amendment as interplaying with the how the separation of powers allocates responsibilities between branches of government.
1: So can, can I ask you one question that is in, in this just general zone that's been giving me um, some pause, which is, does it matter if the statements that are at issue arise in response to a question from the press in a press conference, as opposed to a circumstance in which... A president just chooses to make an affirmative statement or speech. And the reason I ask is you could obviously envision situations in which there's an elicitation of a response from a press question, and it seems eminently within the crosshairs of the president's official duties to to have press conferences and respond
0: yes. to press. So, think,
1: so he says the exact same thing, right? but it's in response to a direct question yeah. in a press conference.
0: I think there is a difference uh, and the reason uh, it somewhat responded to Judge Katz's before is one th- th- where he has initiated this. Um, I think it shows an, a degree of his responsibility for the uh, for the continuing course of conduct, even if, in fact, in response to a reporter's question, he says. So,
1: somewhere you're, you're going, I think, is then then the exact the literally the exact same words. I understand. Maybe apart from the lead-in. Immunity in response to a press question or press conference, no immunity when it's an affirmative speech. And I just want to make sure that's right. That may be what you're saying, but I want to make sure that's right. I think
0: what my my intention was to say the response with the same content, the reporter's question, there's immunity.
1: So then then in the affirmative statement situation, so put it in the land of non-immunity under your rubric, suppose the president starts by saying, I know there's been a lot of questions out there about the following. He reads the Twitterverse, whatever. A lot of questions out there about the following. Here's my statement. Still, no immunity there because it wasn't literally in response to a press question in the middle of a press conference, even though the zeitgeist is. Right. I I
0: think, I think, uh, did I interrupt you? No, no, you didn't. uh, I think the key question is whether you can infer from this that the president was intending to launch or initiate a course of action beginning of which is he starts with his statement which you've referred to um, and if that's the case and there are in this case other circumstances that, that are consistent with that, um, I think he's responsible and I think he loses his immunity uh, even though he may have said something very similar or identical in response to a press question, um, that
1: at least but can't he intend to launch that same thing in response to a press question?
0: He could if that's the way. If 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 a reporter asks him something, he says, "I want to use this opportunity to." Well, he doesn't
1: say that, but he he says the same thing. I mean, but every, just the inference is kind of use that question as a vehicle for.
0: So so again, I you know we are. These are going to be somewhat fact. I know mm-hmm. this is not satisfying, but
1: no, smart. no, but that that's what we have to do. Fact yeah.
0: driven kind of inquiries. And we come back to the point that the inquiry ought to be about whether the president, based on the well-pleaded allegation of the complaint, is it's evident that he was launching or uh, directing a, uh, or himself, I mean, uh, a, a course of action, which is going to interfere with the co uh, branch of government. And but is
1: it your view that then as a categorical matter, in resp- when it's in response to a press question, that standard won't be satisfied?
0: If it's if it's a response to a press question, that alone insulates it from. life, Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah. Does is that is a category? I, I heard just. No, your no in- I,
0: I'm sorry if I wasn't clear. I, I mean, it ordinarily I would think it would be uh, immune, but I would say if it is functionally equivalent to what I just said, the president launched a course of conduct, then I think he would have the same same effect. He would lose his immunity,
1: even even in a
0: press conference. Correct. If it's a functional equivalence to. Uh, to standing there as if he said in response to the reporter thank you for asking the question it gives me the opportunity to announce that i want the crowd to go to congress and do these other things the fact that it responds to a press question i don't think is
1: right uh, i mean i don't think it's ever going to be that stark but it would be you get the question and you say in the course of giving the response
0: i understand um, and I, things, again and I, I,
1: it could be it could be immune could be not immune even I, if I, think it's,
0: I think i think it depends on the circumstances and i Unfortunately, I
4: think that that's up to the courts. So So let me ask, I understand the standard uh, on summary judgment, but here, I just wanna be clear. Um, You acknowledge, I think that the statement, the actual words used by the president Mm -hmm. are not what the crowd actually did. In other words, the president didn't say break in, it didn't say assault members of Congress, assault uh, Capitol Police, or anything like that. And what I'm concerned about is to what extent, at this stage, we're in a that a court is in a position to give the plaintiffs the benefit of all reasonable inferences. And as I understand your argument, because of the president being um, the head of the executive branch, we expect certain types of conduct from him. And that conduct would not include denigrating the separation of powers. And so even though he was very careful in the words he used, and had language in there that said, remember to be peaceful. Nevertheless, part of our political system, as you know better than I, is there are always, unfortunately, going to be extremists on both sides who go too far. And the president says, I never told anybody to break in. I never told anybody to assault the Capitol Police. I never told anybody uh, to ram- ramage through the Capitol building. And um, a, a more negative inference, I suppose, arises because even after he was informed about the dangers that this crowd had placed members of Congress and had in fact disrupted the proceeding and that people were being seriously injured and there were direct threats toward the vice president, he did nothing to issue a calming statement and tell his followers, for example, go home, you know, stop this kind of lawful uh, protest that's become unlawful with people being injured, et cetera. So by standing silent, even when he did not know arguably in advance that some of his followers would take his remarks to be asking them to do what they were doing, Nevertheless, given the words he used, he is entitled to immunity because commenting that he thought over a course, of period, a course of time that the election was stolen from him can be viewed as a critique, a bully pulpit critique of the way the states were checking the votes that were cast and then certifying them to the Congress. And sort of trying to put the most negative inference on what the president was saying. One of the areas I'm concerned about is we have a history in this country of protests where they may start out as peaceful protests, but they turn violent either because of um, oppo- opposing points of view or uh, police actions, etc. So here we're talking about the President of the United States and He makes this statement after, as you say, a course of conduct. And then according to the complaint, even after he's told of the physical and human damage that has been done and is being done, he stands silent. So I guess my focus is, is that fact critical here? that
0: that is an allegation in the complaint. Right. Um, so Judge Rogers, let me, let me try to respond to, you raised a number of very important points. First of all, the, to the last point you made, uh, the allegations are in the complaint that in the afternoon after the crowd began to break into the Capitol, uh, the media was covering this. The allegation is that President Trump saw the reports of that and uh, not only did he do anything to calm the crowd, he actually retweeted the remarks that he issued uh, at the Ellipse uh, to support them. There's also, uh, even before that, when uh, at the very end of the remarks at the Ellipse, when um, uh, he, President Trump called upon the crowd to go to the Capitol, uh, he started the, the allegations, this is a joint appendix, page 38, uh, people were saying, uh, shouting, storm the Capitol and take the Capitol right now. Um, and the president did nothing to calm that or say, no, that's not what I meant. As to your point about there being buried within this lengthy set of remarks, a, uh, a series of uh, statements about uh, go peacefully and uh, patriotically, I think, is one phrase that he used. Um, again, I want to make the point that this is part of a broader course of conduct. And it has to be looked at that way, not uh, parsed separately with particular uh, which I think would be a mistake uh, in world courts and endless amounts of line drawing. Um, here, it was quite clear he had a choice that he could, uh, if he really wanted to raise the concerns about the uh, what he viewed was a fraudulent election or election security or something of that sort, he could have done that without dispatching the crowd the Capitol at exactly the point when they were engaged in counting the Electoral College ballots. So this was sending a crowd to an area, as I said before, in which the constitution is hermetically sealed uh, this from the president and entrusted only to the Congress. Um, and it is, I think, uh, fair to infer from that that his intentions were to have this crowd attempt to interfere with that. In fact, he said, you know, let's uh, stop them from uh, the county of the electors and have only the laws who are lawfully slated. Um, an area that, again, Alexander Hamilton was clear in Federalist Paper 68 was to be excluded from the incumbent president. So I submit that you, your your points are well taken. I agree with them. There is a broader point here, which is about looking at this through a, as a continuous course of conduct.
1: I'll ask one, one more question. I want to make sure that um, Judge riders got the response got a response. Honest, um, one more question. The You kind of framed this as two different ways to affirm in your mind. One is the blocking of the function of another branch, separation of powers, rationale. And the other is seeking to vindicate a personal interest in attaining office as opposed to falling within official responsibility. Um, for, your, for your argument, we haven't talked much about that one. And what's and they kind of merge to some extent, because one way to show that it's not part of the official responsibility of the president is if it's exclusively the responsibility of another branch. But and I, I don't want to have an entirely new argument on this, but I'm just what's your reaction to the proposition that attaining office is vindicating one's personal interest in a way that renders immunity principles inapplicable because it doesn't have to do with something that's within your official responsibility.
0: Yes, uh, uh, it is clearly, that's our our position that um, seeking to perpetuate your incumbency or attaining office, as you put it, um, is is necessarily outside the scope of the official duties of the presidency because the presidency has no view as to who holds the presidency. So it cannot be construed as any kind of exercise enumerated otherwise of any duties entrusted by the Constitution to the President. So it is a, uh, my only reason to focus on the separation of powers is because as I think the District Court observed, it may be harder to provide some kind of, admittedly not perfect, but set of benchmarks to give the courts to administer this uh, using the separation of powers as the uh, ground uh, position as opposed to the question that was presented here, but I thought the district court did an excellent job of reviewing all the allegations and uh, assembling them and, and, and digesting them and concluding that ultimately the president was engaged in uh, efforts to campaign to perpetuate his incumbency on these fact these factual allegations.
1: Okay. So make sure my colleagues don't have additional questions for you. Thank, Thank you, you uh, Mr. Sellers. Mr. All will give you. Three minutes for a rebuttal.
2: We'll see where that goes. Thank you, Your Honor. As we started the argument today, one thing that the court brought up, and I understand the court's concern here, is that you said that there was line drawing issues on both sides. And I think we've seen that through the questioning today. One thing that I'd like to point out is that when there are these issues about line drawing and you look at the stark separation of powers concerns, the tie has to go to the runner, use the baseball analogy. You need
1: to, and the Fitzgerald court makes- And I assume you think the runner is the president? The runner is the president right. in this case. Okay.
2: Um, and uh, that, that much and more, the, the Fitzgerald court made, made so clear that even if it's close, that has to go to the president to protect the, that separation of powers interests. And the, the argument that, that my friend focused on um, about separation the alleged offense of separation of, of powers, what that, what that framework essentially looks at is that by saying that there's been an offense to the separation of powers that opens the floodgates, you don't necessarily have to worry about standing, you then can say immunity no longer applies. That's a particularly problematic analysis, especially since for separation of powers concerns, there is impeachment. A dispute between Article 1 and Article 2 is specifically provided for in, in the Constitution. Judge Katz, is, um, one thing that, that I, I think important to, to look at regarding the court's Brandenburg uh, thoughts is, well, it's certainly not the case that Brandenburg would comprise the outer perimeter uh, the, the full outer perimeter. It is important to see that speech by a president that is clearly within Brandenburg, as this speech was, as the court pointed out, you have to look at the
3: words themselves, not the powder keg. And, and that, that is that, the- that, That's my instinct, but give me your best shot on why at least at a motion to dismiss stage on these facts, we shouldn't say that there's at least a litigable issue.
2: Because of the fact that immunity is meant to protect from litigation, not just from liability, but that is, as the as the Fitzgerald
3: court points out quite clearly as other courts. Than immunity. I mean, this, this question is on the assumption that Brandenburg or not matters. And I, I understand your broader mm-hmm. position is um, it doesn't matter. Just assume it does. You, you only need the protections of the First Amendment when there is that powder keg,
2: and a lot of times for insight. So the powder, the powder keg is is always there. It's, it's certainly in there in, in the Clyburn case. It's certainly in there in, in Brandenburg, uh, and, and certainly in, in the progeny. And so it that's why it is, it is so extremely important at that point that we then look at the words themselves. And in this point, because those words clearly fall within that, It must be that they're within the outer perimeters of the presidency, um, just as a matter of law, without needing further factual analysis. Because having to go through and do a further factual analysis at that point would would eviscerate the entire purpose of immunity.
1: Um, I see my my time has expired. I have have one question. Uh, Sorry to belabor this, but there's allegations in the complaint that are beyond the January 6th speech. Yes, and so, and some of them don't naturally raise random questions and, or other kinds of questions. Some of them can be viewed as you know, more private um, in nature, outside the kind of what we've been talking about. So even if one thought that the January 6th speech is something that implicates presidential immunity, what about the fact that there's still other things in the complaint, like filing lawsuits in the personal capacity, like um, having private conversations with election officials in various states like uh, planning uh, the rally, um, things of that nature that don't really squarely implicate a lot of the things we're talking about here, but that are in the case. I, I think there's a reason
2: why the district court effectively looks at this analysis as the communications because those communications are the only thing that could survive the other aspects of the case. So for instance, the district court, when it talked about the first amendment analysis, ag- I acknowledge that the first amendment would would prohibit those other acts aspects of it. So that's why I, I think it's appropriate when we look at immunity here. primarily, we look at the speech issues. But when it look when you look at things like uh, election lawsuits and and other activities uh, of a president, that still is uh, within um, the the outer perimeter regardless. but I, it's it's, I think still very clearly um, a part of the outer perimeter test. And then you also come, to the very particular problem, if you want to, as the complaint suggests, go towards some sort of negative responsibility of the president. So, for instance, the
1: suggestion in the complaint that, that the president had a duty to talk and Right, and that's knew, not before us because that, I don't think that um, there was. I just lost on that and didn't appeal on the 1986 part. I mean, it's not, at least it's not part of the collateral. I I,
2: I, I agree. And just as that, we're talking so. about the other things as part of the complaint, I, I would say that. Um, when, when you look at, at all that together, is this still something that the president is doing on matters of public concern? Is it still, you know, beyond just the bully call, that, that the president doing as president and he is and anything else that the district court properly recognized would be prohibited by the First Amendment. Otherwise?
1: OK, thank you, counsel. Thank you to both counsel. We'll take this case under submission.